Shopify Masters is powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. Go straight from Kickstarter to Indiegogo. So if someone saw like an old Facebook post, they could still have a way to buy the product even if the Kickstarter ended. Hey, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters. Each and every week, you learn the keys to success from e-commerce experts and entrepreneurs like you. In this episode, you'll learn how to transition from a product-based business to a service, how to launch on multiple crowdfunding platforms, and how to sell your product through international distributors. Today, I'm joined by Jay and Ross from Body Boss. Body Boss is the world's first home gym you can take anywhere and was started in 2014 and based out of Cincinnati, Ohio with teams all over the world. Welcome, Jay and Ross. Hey, how's it going? Hey, how's it going? Good, good. Glad to have the both of you on. So yeah, can you talk, tell us a little bit more about the, the, the product that you sell? So it's, it's a mix of things, really. It's, it's both a product and a service. Uh, we start, our concept is portable strength training. So it is a home gym that you can easily pack up, slide and put under your bed and pull out, uh, get an effective workout from home or anywhere you go and follow live recorded workouts with trainers uh, and various programs. So, so really what we do is we bring the gym to you. Very cool. So you mentioned that this was a product and a service, or this is a product and a service. Did you guys start with the intention of having both uh, launching at the same time, the the product and the service? It was part of the vision. Uh, the product definitely came first, and the vision was something that we we we've always wanted to incorporate. It was part of the, the original idea, but it the product was really the catalyst and bringing that to life. Got it. Yeah, it's hard already to start one or the other, right? Starting a product or starting a service. They're almost, to some degree, uh, two separate businesses and two separate products that, or two separate business lines that you're launching. Yeah. Uh, how did you, how were you able to decide when you should, uh, you know, not necessarily switch focus, but go from running this product-based business to introducing a service? To answer your question there, I'll, I'll kind of take this, Jay, if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah. Basically... For us, uh, when we decided to kind of go from a product business to service was really when we started to focus on two things, really. Using the product as much as we possibly could because uh, we felt like, you know, obviously with any entrepreneur, you're going to go through hard times. It wasn't until we started using the product that we started understanding all the possibilities because everything else was kind of a guess until you actually use the product that you're selling. Um, from there, really, uh, we immediately saw the possibilities of the user experience. And we started realizing that, you know, for us to be able to get good reviews, for us to be able to really live the life that we want, um, or like, I guess the reason we set out to do this was to give people the opportunity who might not be able to go to the gym fitness for the masses. We thought that we would be able to, um, really devote ourselves to the users. And in turn, they would tell their friends, you know, we would sell more product. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah. We can you get into a little more details about how you launched the service, I guess, side of the business. 
we really focused on um, user experience. So how we launched it was, is we started to really understand what the users wanted. And, and we started realizing that if we could focus on making sure that their experience is undoubtedly a good experience and they will use the product, then we knew that we could sell more product. So Jay could probably add to that. Um, but for me, it was um, just really the user experience and understanding what they're doing. And then from there, we could, we could real, realistically launch the service through email, um, through automated journeys and stuff like that. The service is comprised of a couple different things. I mean, we on one hand, we have recorded videos on YouTube. So that's that's an easy access point. And for some people, that's just their preferred method. They'd rather just have something on a platform they're familiar with, really easy for them to follow. Uh, I mean, we have service in the forms of just written workouts. We are in the process of scaling that more so towards an interactive environment. So kind of like we're doing a live call now. Uh, having a, you can almost imagine like a Skype workout between you and a trainer mm -hmm. and even in a group sense. So there's, there's kind of a multi-asset level to that. Some people just like the recorded aspect. Some people want to follow a broadcast. Some people kind of want that more personalization one-on-one. -on -one. Got it. That makes, that makes sense. So it, it sounds like you, you launched a product, but you wanted to help your customers get more value out of that product. And you did that by offering this kind of content, this service side of the, the business. Exactly. Got it. Now, how did you decide or how did you figure out what was that first piece of content or what was that first piece of guide or video that you should launch? I think other folks are in the same shoes where they have a product and they know there's value in it. They know that if customers, if people out there use their product to its full extent, it'll improve their lives. But it's it's uh, there's only, only so much you can do once you give away a product or once you sell a product. There needs to be some, that kind of next level follow up. And in your case, it was this service layer where there were videos and guides and, and coaching involved. How did you know what was that first layer that you should apply on top of your products? Really just talking to the customers, hearing what they wanted, uh, hearing about their, their difficulties, you know, understanding the pain points that they go through and, and giving them an experience that feels like it's just, it's, you know, built perfectly just for them. Uh, so we actually had one of our first clients was someone Ross was training uh, this woman named Michelle and, you know, she was someone who hadn't worked out in years, uh, really needed that personalization of one-on-one. -on -one. So it started off that in particular as a, a very personal direct one-on-one -on -one virtual training. And it, it, that really helped validate our concept. So it, I, to answer your question, really just talking to the customers and hearing what they wanted. Mm -hmm. And once you learned that, learned that, 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 learned what they wanted, what did you have to change about your business to be able to offer and support this level of service? Uh, it's important to just note that there are very different production cycles between service and product. So everything's just kind of an opportunity cost. You know, and we, we only have so many hours of uh, time and attention of what we can focus on. Mm -hmm. So just seeing the opportunity cost of uh, really enhancing, improving on the product versus service. I mean, ultimately, they're tied together. So we do both. But that's kind of the thing we're evaluate when we're looking at our decisions is uh, is, is that trade off. 
I see. So I'm assuming that the service, of course, adds to the lifetime value of, of the customer. How how is it how's it monetized? How's the service aspect of it monetized? Right now, uh, for us to be able to sell the service, what we did was is see we were in a in a in a tough situation, and this is why I keep going back to whatever business you're in, be assertive and trust trust your instinct with how you want to set up the service. So for instance, I tried looking and I know Jay and I, we tried looking at other businesses and how they did their service. But for us, literally, when we started using the product over and over again, all these ideas started coming. And then we started getting customers and we started realizing that we have customers, like we're in a tough spot. I mean, this e-commerce world's amazing. Um, <clears throat> if you could build the trust, you don't even have to drive around to meetings to get a sale, you know? So mm -hmm. what I would say to answer your question, how we started monetizing the service was, is we put ourselves in very tough situations and we trusted our gut with how we wanted to do this. Like we were always trying to stay a step ahead of the customer. So one of the things we learned was, is that we kept getting messages from people saying, I don't know how to use this or, you know, I don't want this anymore. And most of the time people that could potentially really hurt you, but you got to figure out the root of the problem. And we found the root of the problem was, is everyone in the world is going to make excuses not to work out. So that was unique for our businesses is that we're targeting a market or I guess the market that came to us early on is people who don't go to the gym. So you got to figure they don't go to the gym, you know, they're going to make every excuse they possibly can to not work out. So we got to provide a service that solves those problems for them and trust our instinct and know that at the end of the day, we're doing what's best for them. So we started realizing to monetize the service, we could actually act like a gym. You know, we just aren't like, why do we need to have a gym where you have to drive there? Why not just make a virtual gym? So that's what we started saying was, is like, we're going to provide you the ability to come to our virtual gym and get workouts. We're going to actually give you different levels of service, depending on who you are and where you're at in your journey with our product. So we, might, so we started doing live streaming. Um, and we started realizing that people actually wanted a set time. So I would say like, for us to get to the point where we monetized it is like, don't rush it, like have patience, but take your user experience over the top and force yourself to be unique with each and every customer and don't view the customers as numbers. Um, that's what we, like we made, like early on, we made the mistake, like, or at least I did. I know emotionally Jay's very grounded, but I feel like, when, when we treated them like numbers early on, we missed out on so much opportunity because it wasn't until we actually like one by one said, we're going to change their life as best as we can if they want us to. So to monetize it, I would say we, um, we really just went, we, we just literally tried to stay a step by the customers and force ourselves to understand their experience. Got so it. I, I, we, yeah, we were referred to the book, by one of our mentors, Sawmill, uh, uh, lean startup method. And it talks about that, like he was having trouble with referral rates. 
So we just focused on referrals and user experience for the first three months as best as we could, one person at a time. Can you say a little more about that? What, what is a referral rate and what did you do to, to focus on it? Yeah. So we focused on how can we service, like we didn't try to expand too quickly. What we did was, is we said, if we get one customer, we're going to service that customer so good that that customer will then tell their friend. So what we did was with Michelle is we, we actually didn't really even have inventory. So we were forced to service Michelle and, 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 you know, really stay alive. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. we made money off of training her and she would pay us a monthly payment actually of $500. Um, and she would actually, then we serviced her for two months and we said, we're not going to try to get new customers until we service her so well that she tells her friends. So we serviced her. We took her through the experience with our product. We learned so much on the journey. And then we started realizing that she, like she asked, Hey, can my friends come and work out with us on this Google hangout? And then she, the next day she had friends that came to the workout and, uh, we went from there. So we, that's kind of how, and, and we focus mm-hmm. on the metric referrals, the referral rate. Got it. And is there a way that you measure that, that today? Cause I think in, in the, the very beginning, when you had one customer, your goal was just to, to blow them away with, with such great customer service that they would want to tell other people and ask, or basically like you're saying, refer your product and your service to, to their friends. But today, is there a way to measure that at scale? So we have a uh, referral program where users can actually get cash back. So that is one method. Um, from just general word of mouth marketing, we don't really have an exact metric. We're, we're trying to create, create incentive structures around that so consumers can actually benefit. And I know a lot of companies have seen success like that with like Dropbox offering invite friends to uh, get additional space. And you know, I, I think that whole referral uh, process we've seen a lot of companies do really successfully. We have something in place, so that's on one level of baseline metric, but there's a lot of word of mouth marketing that we're not really able to capture mm-hmm. in terms of data. Yeah, it's one of the ones that, that's much harder to capture because you can't track what someone's saying to someone else about about your product. But when it comes to the, the referral program, what, what are you using a specific app or technology for this? Like, How is it all set up? Yeah, it actually plugs directly into Shopify. Uh, we use something called Refersion, and it, it creates a nice... We, we, we got initial exposure to this in crowdfunding and just seeing how successful it was to just turn your customers into your sales force, essentially. I mean, when people just love your product and they vouch for it, they tell their friends, and we want to incentivize and encourage them to do that. So we use a, a Shopify plugin in, uh, called Refersion. Mm-hmm. And when does the customer get introduced to this referral program? If I am to go on your site right now and purchase this product, when do I first get exposure to this opportunity to to essentially be rewarded for for sharing your product with my friends? Yeah, so we include in some of our uh, in like our campaign messaging. So when you make a purchase, uh, just letting you know here this is something that you have an option to. We have a referral program where you can actually make cash back. Uh, we have direct links on our site as well, but we include that in some of the initial onboarding. 
Got it. And have there been experiments that you run uh, around what works best in terms of getting someone to, to essentially, uh, or to motivate someone to to refer your or to to be a part of the referral program or to refer somebody? Really building awareness. I mean, that's step one. You know, even if you sometimes you have to communicate things multiple times for it to really resonate. You know, you never know if someone is just reading an email and passing on their phone while they're you know, at a stoplight or watching TV. It's, it's really just being consistent with your communication, reminding people and showing them where they can access that. Got it. And is it just straight up like cash that they get or like what is the incentive? Yeah. So it's like a, they get a referral code and they get a 10% cash back program from that. So any, any sort of payments that come through from their link, then they automatically get paid out. And do you find that that's the, the most of, effective uh, in- incentive for, for customers? It, yeah, what we've seen so far, we, we want to experiment a little bit more in the future, but just from what we've seen be really successful with crowdfunding, like on, on Kickstarter, you, you know, we got countless sales from people uh, referring other people and for us to have like a dashboard to display that. And so they could see exactly how many people are clicking on their links, what their current referral rate is. I mean, it was just, it was very successful. I see. So you were using this referral program even before you had the the site. This was back when you were just doing the crowdfunding. Uh, it started there, so that's when we got exposed to it, and then we really took it into gear on on the website itself. Got it. Yeah. So let's talk about the the crowdfunding. So you actually launched on the the two uh, major platforms, both on Kickstarter and Indiegogo. On Kickstarter, you raised uh, over half a million dollars uh, uh, from two thousand six hundred backers, and on Indiegogo, did even better with uh, one point three million dollars by three thousand four hundred and fifty backers. Uh, can you talk about the? I think was it were you launching the same product on both of these platforms? Correct. Uh, so we we did Kickstarter first, and then we carried over to Indiegogo after. Got it. Can you talk a little bit about the the uh, idea behind this? Because I think most of the time people would ha- sit down and they decide which platform should I launch on. They just end up sticking with one, and you took advantage by going on both. Can you talk a little bit about the, the, the thinking behind that? Yeah, I mean, we use a lot of different platforms. I, I view these as different uh, sales verticals. I mean, we, we use Amazon, Walmart, Newegg, eBay. We have a lot of different silos. Uh, our, our mentality and philosophy is what are the different ways we can make revenue? Uh, where can we really push this out? Kickstarter was more of a logical first step just because it's it's the number one crowdfunding platform. We actually use something on Indiegogo called On Demand and where it's uh, ongoing sales. So we don't have a, a campaign life like we did on Kickstarter. So that really made sense to carry forward afterwards after we finished our, our Kickstarter. So we, we really launched our Indiegogo the very hour, really, the Kickstarter ended. We just kept that momentum going. Yeah, it's interesting because I went to the Kickstarter and I think if I, I think most of the time when a Kickstarter campaign ends, there's a button that you can uh, essentially drive traffic to. Most of the time people will drive that traffic to their, their website. But I think in your case, it drives to the Indiegogo on-demand sales campaign. Is that correct? Uh, I'll have to double check it, but I believe that's correct. Yeah, that, that's that's very cool, and there was obviously no issue with that. That that, that the traffic from Kickstarter is going to Sydney Go Go. I'm assuming since they, they allow that. Um, was there a a did you did you 
plan this? I'm assuming you plan to schedule this out, right? Where you knew that Kickstarter is where we're going to launch first. And then because Kickstarter has to, and eventually you wanted to carry that momentum, that buzz over to, to another platform. Exactly. And that's, that's why we did a lot of that, uh, that forwarding is because we had links everywhere. I mean, Ross and I were just blasting different Facebook pages, getting things out there and you want to have a little bit of shelf life, right? Like something someone might not see that same day. But if I see a link that was maybe passed around four days ago, that's that's really why we want to just keep that momentum rolling to just go straight from Kickstarter to Indiegogo. So if someone saw like an old Facebook post, they could still have a way to buy the product even if the Kickstarter ended. Got it. And what have you learned about being on these two different platforms? I think my very first question, because you happen on both, is how are the customer bases different between Kickstarter and Indiegogo? I'd say they're pretty similar. Uh, Ross, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. T- to me, there's a lot of parallels. Uh, but, uh, you know, I- I'd say there's more in common than there is different. Um, they've been great customers, you know, they, they put up their, they're the early adopters, the first believers, people who can put up with an idea, take some risk on that. You know, those, these are some of my favorite backers, favorite customers really, because they're the, the initial believers. Yeah. I, I have noticed that between Kickstarter and Indiegogo, um, there's really, <clears throat> there's really a strong community that understands I guess like what it's like to buy on Kickstarter. It's not considered buying, but they're still getting what the, I guess what the companies that launch on there want to reward them. So for instance, we, we gave them lower prices, Mm -hmm. but we also gave them more benefits and try to connect them to us so that we could learn as we're building out our Shopify site and our main site, that's going to last forever. You know, so really, I feel like the difference between the buyers that we see and face every day on Shopify, um, it's going to be much more quicker or much more fast paced. It's going to, you know, it's day in and day out. You got to set up a system that lasts um, and make minor tweaks. But the nice thing about going on Kickstarter and Indiegogo is the fact that these people are basically willing to give you a payment without even having any inventory or proven record mm-hmm. unless um, unless you lay it out for them. So it was really cool for us because we took it as they're going to provide us the feedback that we need to set up our Shopify site, hook up our warehouse, um, you know, where we should, you know, store product for inventory, um, what type of shipping information is, in, <clears throat> is important to them, what type of triggers um, are important to them in the buying process. So for instance, we learned that some of our assumptions before we launch were much different than what people actually wanted. We had a lot of people that asked us for add-ons on our product. For instance, they wanted uh, a bench and they wanted uh, an ab wheel. And they also wanted pocket guides that they could just hang on their wall and follow. So these are the things we could learn and we could do that on Shopify. I know there's different templates that provide you the ability to do a pre-launch and pre-order. But the nice thing about Kickstarter is it's a, it's a short 30 to 60 day, 15 to 60 day, whatever you decide campaign. 
that gives you the opportunity to learn really and get your inventory started started to roll. Um, it's really helped us as we've transitioned into Shopify because we can gauge what type of success we're going to have. Mm-hmm. Um, as we've gotten, yeah. So I would say the difference between you know the buyers who purchase every day and are willing to do that, and the actual Kickstarter and Indiegogo backers is the Kickstarter and Indiegogo backers actually want to see your company succeed. Mm-hmm. We've carried mm-hmm. a lot, a lot of the company. I guess activities that we did on Kickstarter, we've carried that over to Shopify and it's really laid some good principles for our business as we move forward. So for instance, we do company updates every Monday and Friday for our our Kickstarter and Indiegogo community. And we've actually included our Shopify customers in on that as well. And it's a cool aspect that people can see because we're being transparent that we are a new company. We're transitioning into being a big time company you know, we're real just like you. We're a part of this just like you, but we're having a lot of successes. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Walmart's contacting us. Um, you know, we're in the number 12 home gym on Amazon right now. Um, you know, different things like that occur, and it just provides us that engagement that we've learned from Kickstarter. So they've taught us some things as well. They're very engaged. I think it's clear that what you're saying is that there's a community of of uh, customers that are on these crowdfunding platforms that are typically more invested in the company's success and then the founder's story more so than maybe someone that's just coming to your site. Now, when you are and you're able to drive these this community of of backers to your other platforms, whether that be on your website. Uh, on, on, onto your services, maybe onto your YouTube channel, onto your social media, onto all these other other platforms. Do you find that that they go to these other platforms? Do you find that they interact with those communities? Yeah, so that's actually one of the first things Jay and I realized is we were kind of nervous having a separate site as we we're in in tandem with our crowdfunding, but these people actually want you to have a professional Shopify type site where they can go and they can see your growth. They can refer their friends outside of the 30 days of your campaign. Mm-hmm. They can read about, um, you know, different forums and they can read about different updates and some of the things as they, as your company progresses. So we learned that it's, you know, they, they, they still understand and they still expect you to be a a company and a company has a website. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, They might just be, they understand that it's just a a pre-launch before you get on your website. So we had a lot of people that were requesting a website and that was actually the first thing that everyone was asking us is like, when are you going to launch your site? You know, can we get a forum? You know, can we have a place where we can comment, where we can review? That's another thing that it's amazing for is that, if you really service these people, your first customers is they'll they'll actually write reviews on Shopify for you when you launch your, your Shopify store. And that really helped us to build the trust as we launched. I see. So these are people that were maybe buyers or backers on these crowdfunding sites. They got the product. And now that you have a site, they were willing to to write a review on the product, even though they didn't necessarily buy directly from the the, the website. Yeah. Cool. Jay, you mentioned that you are on multiple platforms. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the, the different ones that are maybe your, your top or your main platforms that, that you, you are uh, selling on right now? 
Yeah, I'd say Amazon is, is has really been picking up a ton of steam. We've had a lot of success there. Uh, Shopify is definitely up there. Um, Walmart more recently, we are just onboarding them and, and have really big expectations for that. Indiegogo has been consistent really for this whole year. Um, so those have been our B2C channels. We, we also do about half our sales to distributors. So that's not necessarily a channel per se, but that's, I'd, I'd like for the listeners to know that that's, that's a large part of our, our revenue as well. And, and that kind of has a different approach to it for how we, we've uh, been able to build out that process. Can you say a little more about that? What, what is the, what is the, um, the experience been like there? Uh, oh man, these are anywhere from 10 to a hundred K account values. Uh, it's, it's a much longer, more in-depth sales cycle. Obviously, uh, you're really holding their hand, walking them through, getting them set up, uh, really trying to empower them to be able to sell successfully and continue that forward. You know, our, our best, our best contracts are with people who order from us consistently and ultimately, you know, they're able to make profit from it than us. And, and, and we're okay with that because we want to empower different, different countries, different uh, distributors around the globe to really represent our brand uh, and really get our brand name out there. Um, so that, that's been a, a, a growing part of our business and uh, something that I've, I've been working a lot on in particular. Mm-hmm. So how does it work? So you, you have these international distributors, you work with them and then they are going out there to sell to their to, to different uh, brick and mortar stores in these uh, uh, you know, around the world. Is that how it works or like what's the, how's it, how's it play out? Not exactly always brick and mortar. So we even had uh, one of our most recent successful distributors did a crowdfunding campaign in Japan. Uh, neither Ross nor I speak Japanese or really understand that market full, fully enough. So they're able to take the content that we have that we use for our crowdfunding, uh, put Japanese language behind it, mm-hmm. repurpose it a little bit, and just be able to communicate that effectively to their market. And it, and it really helps us out because uh, for how much, you know, I don't know how I, Ross could probably comment on the number of pounds we've shipped, but it's a ton. It's, it's a ton of product and a lot of weight. And just dealing with so much of the logistics, it's sometimes just, you know, such a relief when we can just have one single person that they can just manage that pro- that process from start to finish. Um, yeah. It, We've had, uh, Jay, to answer your question, the freight forwarder told us this. We thought it was cool because we're close with them. We've imported about 675,000 pounds worth of product uh, to date. Yeah, that's funny that that you're moving so much product that they can put a a weight uh, value on on how much you're 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 shipping. And it wasn't, you know, like yeah. The thing is, is I'm sure there's going to be listeners out there that are just getting started. But I'll let Jay continue and to answer your question, Felix. But just know that that's, I mean, every single person I feel like that told Jay or not or looked at our product at first was like you should not do this. You should go get a job that pays you, you know, because when you first start your business, it's going to be irrational online. But then once you figure it out and stuff, you just have to sacrifice and don't listen to the people because they're going to all tell you to quit like us. Everyone's going to say to quit, but if you just stick it out and keep trying and, and have passion and keep going and keep going and keep going, then eventually you'll make it. And we are so far from making it, but We've had a ton of success in 2017, at the end of 2016, too, when we 2.0 our product and we learned and 
we went through the service and eventually this year we're going to add um, even more products. We're going to add technology to our products and we're going to start to, there's been a lot of people asking us to be a part of our brand with their product because they have trouble selling online and, and we have a passion for it. Um, but you know, just never quit. Don't listen to them. That's the main, that that's something that could be easy to do. Cause I promise you, <laughs> we, you, you have like entrepreneur friends around and we had, I think I had about, you know, maybe four or five in a group and three out of the people out of the five were right there. I felt like they had almost at the time, better products than us. They were getting meetings with gas station. The, he was a, it was a, it was, I forget the exact product. It was like a bamboo type um, to clean your teeth. And he was getting great meetings. He was right there, right there. But then they, you know, he quit and the other two quit too. And the two people who just waited three years, Jay and I, and then Casey, Casey's now in Costco. He actually uses Shopify too. He's, he's a stud and he has his aunt's cookies <laughs> that he makes. And, uh, He's now in every single Costco in the whole U.S. And it took him a year to have that account. Um, and, and he's selling cookies that weren't selling for three years. Just stick it out and keep trying and, and keep trying. I've, I don't know. That is some advice that I've kind of just seen. Yeah, I think that, I think that's great advice, especially for anyone that's in there right now that's just not seeing success right away, and are thinking that it's not for them or they're never going to be successful. I think that's important to note that sometimes the winner is a person that can just stick it out the longest and make these sacrifices and, and make these uh, you know, adapt to to what they need to do to to stay in the game essentially. Um, so yeah. The, these uh these distributors that you work with, I thought that was really funny that you are, they aren't just selling to these brick and mortars. You got you guys are saying that they are also selling online, and in the one case, there's a Japanese seller that's selling on a crowdfunding camp, a crowdfunding site. So this is not like a Kickstarter or Indiegogo; it's like a Japanese specific crowdfunding site. Correct. It's something called Green Funding. Mm. Uh, you know, I was surprised about this too, cause it wasn't what I was expecting, but the, the, the success of crowdfunding is just really taking off and Kickstarter really led the way of this, but we're seeing other companies, other countries around the world, even implement their own form of crowdfunding. That's cool. So when you were working with this, this, you're, you're working with just one distributor or how does it, how, what, what's your involvement in getting your product into the international market? Correct. So in this, I mean, we've sold to 62 different countries or so. Uh, with with Japan in particular, we partnered up with a company who just essentially managed that whole campaign. And then they just placed a large purchase order with us at the at the uh, midpoint and at the end of it. Mm -hmm. And in these situations, these deals, do they keep the branding and the messaging? Do they rebrand themselves to fit the, the demographic that they're going after? How does it usually work? The branding is consistent. You know, that's we're really looking to get our name out there, our branding. Uh, so that's the, the branding itself is the same. The messaging tweaks a little bit, but overall the concept is the same of, of bringing the gym to you. Mm -hmm. um, but they'll, they'll obviously use their own language and wording that might be a more appeal of a more appealing in different senses. Right. Now, would you ever take a deal or have you taken a deal where it's a white label product where you're just selling the product and they're slapping their own branding on it? What are your thoughts on that? We've discussed it. We haven't done that before. It's not something that we're currently uh, 
interested in. I mean, the, the, the brand is definitely a big part of us. This, this is our first product, but we don't see it being our, our last one. So it's really important for us to build that, that brand name and recognition. So we haven't done any white labeling yet. Mm-hmm. What, what do you, what do you, what do you kind of weigh in that situation? Like how do you decide if it's a right move or not for you? Or what are your thoughts on if that, if you had to give advice to someone that's in that situation where somebody approaches them and just wants to buy the products and, and slap their own branding on it, what kind of things would you tell them to consider? I think consider your, uh, how that fits into your overall strategy. Uh, you know, thinking not just short term, but long term where you want to really position yourself. Uh, in the market. And that could, you know, it's, it's completely fine if you just want to be in the US or your respective country and just be focused on that market. But we've always viewed ourselves as a global brand. Got it. And when you when you worked with this international distributor, I think that's I think uh, it's certainly attractive to a lot of entrepreneurs that, that might be listening. Is that you open it up, you 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 grow your market much much larger um, without having to to do that groundwork that you had to do so much with the, building the business from the beginning the first time around. Um, when you how, how did you how did you get introduced to the the distributor? How do you work with them? Uh, it's been a mix of inbound and outbound. So we've had a lot of people contacting us really even from crowdfunding, just seeing our success there and reach out to us directly saying they want to get involved. Uh, we've also done some outbound messaging to, to bring on some, some accounts that way. Um, but really there's a lot of vetting. So we, you know, if this, the, the, the example I was just giving you for the Japanese contact uh, you know, we had a variety, a handful of companies contact us really. So there's a lot of vetting and finding out who your who your partner is, who really understands the vision, uh, and not really just looking for a one time transaction. Who's who's someone you can really partner up with? Mm, can you can you say a little bit more about that? About how you you vet uh, which distributors you should partner with? Yeah. So it was uh, basically our process for doing that is is really just looking at their their track record. Uh, ideally, what we look for is someone who principally has experience in fitness, uh, in distribution of fitness products or in that health space, health and wellness. So that, that's our ideal, you know, it, it, I think that a key part is having a, a, a very clear picture of who would be your, uh, ideal partner and being able to write that out and describe that. So our ideal partner is someone who has deep industry expertise in, in their respective market with fitness. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not always the case. Uh, and so we've had plenty of partners who didn't have expertise in that per se. And so then what we would look toward is experience with selling to the consumer or consumer products uh, and really just looking at their track record to verify. Mm-hmm. And have your best partnerships come from distributors that were inbound or, or, or outbound? Uh, we've had a, a lot of success from inbound, I would say. People discovering us from from crowdfunding and you know, we have all of our, our marketing materials there. So it's really easy for us to pass off and, and get these distributors equipped and set up to sell. Mm-hmm. You know, we try to, we try to really hold their hand and provide them the content and equip them with the, the tools they need and really respond to their needs and just, you know, be available, be accessible to, to get them equipped to sell. Got it. What do you, what do you think that attracted them to, to, to reach out to you? Seeing the success, you know, I think, I think people, uh, can pick up on excitement. It, it really builds up on itself. Uh, we have a lot of social proof, obviously, from just seeing other people purchase and transact well. So I think I think just seeing that establishment uh, of success on Kickstarter and Indiegogo really verifies. You know, this isn't just 
people selling to their, their mom and best friends. Like these are actual consumers who find value and, uh, ultimately want the product. Got it. So this is not necessarily a viable approach for someone that's looking for their, their first win or for, for success. It's almost like a big multiplier that you can apply onto your business after you already have sales and a track record. It's different approaches. Like, like Ross mentioned his, his, his buddy, uh, he, I mean, he does pretty much almost exclusively B to B to B. It, it varies by markets. Uh, I would say B to B is probably a lot harder to get your footing into. Um, but it, it really comes from just understanding what your product and offering is and, and what makes the most sense. Got it. I don't jump back a little bit to, to the platforms that you are on, uh, because you are on multiple platforms. How did you decide which one you should move into next? How do, how do you evaluate which platforms to launch into? What, what platform you should be focusing on, on next? At the beginning of the year, we do a, uh, a forecasting of what we expect to do in a variety of, of different channels. And we kind of reach these numbers by just looking at the aggregate market as a whole, seeing you know how, how popular is home gym category on Amazon, like how many units on there, how are they transacting, what part of that market share could we expect to capture. So that's part of it is just looking at just from the market whole of these different platforms, what really makes the most sense. Um, some things like Walmart are by invite, so we didn't really have much control there. Uh, but those are by looking at the overall market is how we would evaluate something like that. So are you looking for a, a platform that, that has a lot of uh, demand, a lot of competition, or, or you look for a platform that, that is weak in the category that, that you're in so you can come in and, and such be a, a big fish? I'd say, I mean, the channels we've had the most success in have been already established pretty well uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in track platforms with their proper footing. So generally, uh, generally something with, with a proven track record and that already has buyers on their platform. Got it. Yeah, and like, I, just to add to that, I feel like everything we're doing is working towards eventually having just a total you know, brand type empire on Shopify. Um, you know, I don't know how Jay feels about this, but when we sit down at the beginning of the year, we ask ourselves on an Excel sheet and, and we understand our business and we say, all right, how much does our product cost right now? You know, what is our core values of our business? And for us, I mean, we're a product business. So the way that we make money is if we, transact a a product so then we asked ourselves how can we make money off this product who is going to come at us this year and where do we want to spend our time so we actually make kind of not guesses but we actually like will sit there and list every channel of how we can make money possible so we say for business to consumer you know, how, how can someone purchase our product and where can they purchase it? And we'll actually list that out and we'll say, how many views do we want to get on this channel? You know, we don't stress out about, you know, how many sales can we call? Like, you know, we don't stress out about that. We just say, if we have a product that we make on a page, we do our collateral work and we make it beautiful, then how many people can we get to that page? And everything is based off that. We try to keep it very simple with that. And then every morning we'll meet because it's fun and we'll say, okay, so yesterday on Shopify, you know, how many views did we generate? 
And what was our conversion like? And we know that if we're driving views, everything's based off of that. Mm -hmm. And we actually put a metric that we found that you got to know your business and what you feel inside is best. Because a lot of this is going to be judgment up first, but you know your product well because you live and breathe it every single day. But we say, we, me and Jay realized that, holy crap, on our last Kickstarter, because we were, you know, we were novices just like anyone else beginning two years ago. But it's like on our last Kickstarter, we realized that if people watch the video, then our conversion went skyrocketing. For whatever reason, if people can see it with our product, then they'll actually transact. So everything we did early on and still to this day is we have to get people to watch our video. If we can get them to watch our video, then they'll convert. So we actually just focus on that on our Shopify page. But early on, like you got to ask yourself, how can I make money? So when we gauge on what channels we want to go to, we actually kind of already laid that out at the beginning of the year. And we know our business and we understand that one day we want to get to Shopify because there's minimal charges. I mean, if you're on Amazon, they're going to take 20, you know, 15 to 21% from you. Mm -hmm. Some of these B2Bs, I mean, they're going to eat up your margins, but don't be greedy early on. If you have confidence, you got to use that to fund and learn so that you can get on Shopify and build your brand that lasts forever. Because if you can get to your own website, that's where it really is incredible. Um, so I don't, I, I feel like everything we're doing is working towards that. That makes sense. You have to really know, I think what you're getting at too, is that you have to really know your numbers so that you in any situation, any platform, any, any channel, uh, you know what, what's possible based on the conversion rates or based on what's going to lead to a better conversion rate. And in your example, people watching videos and being able to see how the product works, increases conversion rates. So you know, the, the kind of levers you can pull and how much of a difference it makes. And then you apply that, layer that on top of the different channels and platforms you can be on. And then that helps you make a decision on where there's the best opportunity. Yeah. And as you're learning this, you can, you're starting to optimize and maximize your own Shopify space, you know, cause mm -hmm. that's your entity. You're, you know, cause one day maybe people will be coming on your site, you know, like people do on Amazon. You never know. So every single time you're, you're using this as a learning opportunity, you're checking how many people viewed, you're checking if it converted. Because if it doesn't convert, you better change something up. Because right. that's a bad business if it doesn't convert. So you know if it doesn't convert, you better, you better change something as quickly as you possibly can. Because if your product doesn't sell, you better get out of that business or do something different. Um, but oftentimes, like, the thing is, is that it might just be one mistake you made when you're setting up your Shopify. It might just be, you know, a simple thing that you can adjust, but move fast and adjust and keep looking at analytics. I can't tell you how much Jay and I, and it's fun after a while, you're, you're hooking up your analytics and you're, and you're literally just studying the data and you're adding as much. When in doubt, I would say like, Jay, Jay kills it on B2B and like, I don't, it's nuts. And he kills it on B2C too with marketing, but I do a lot of the backend conversion stuff. And if you, I, I, I keep this phrase in the back of our mind every time, if you can't enrich someone else, then riches won't come to you. So give as much value as you possibly can. Think value. Jay told me this 
when we did our first Kickstarter and it stuck with me forever and, and literally give as much value as you possibly can and enrich that person because no man can get rich himself unless he enriches others. And if mm-hmm. you can provide consumer without get, I promise you, it wasn't until we actually dropped our price too. I mean, we, we wanted to be as less greedy as we possibly can for the consumer and always err on the consumer do everything for them, you know? So, right. That makes sense. So body boss, portable gym.com is the website. It's the beginning of the year. Now, what do you, what do you guys focus on for this year? What, what are some of the, the big goals that you guys want to hit? Basically vamping up all our existing channels. We also have a new version of the product coming out that'll turn it more into a smart gym. So you can think of, uh, almost the analogy I like to give is just a, a Fitbit Add it on top of the gym so it can track and record your workouts, uh, provide data integration, tell you how much how much uh, pounds and resistance you are pulling. So we're going to be launching another crowdfunding campaign uh, sometime shortly this year. Uh, but outside of that, you know, we I, I think we'll be 10xing our our existing sales from 2017 and and uh, really laying that framework for 2019. Very cool. So again, bodybossportablegym.com to follow along. Thank you so much for your time, Jay and Ross. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Here's a sneak peek for what's in store in the next Shopify Masters episode. When we are coming up with the kit, it's it's to keep it as almost as general as possible to target as wide of an audience as possible. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com slash masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial. Also, for this episode's show notes, head over to shopify.com slash blog.